Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Those are verses 4 to 8 of Psalm 68, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, November the 1st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that. Uh, we're continuing our look at the book of Ecclesiasticus. Uh, again, this is an apocryphal book. It's not in the canon of the Bible itself. If you pick up almost any Bible, you won't find it in there. You'll find it in another little book, little collection of books called the Apocrypha, which are those things which the Church and the, the uh, and Judaism have long considered to be non-canonical. In other words, they don't belong in the 66 books that we have in the Bible. But nevertheless, they are things from which um, uh, wisdom, let's say, can be gleaned. But, but we don't establish any doctrine on these books. So anyway, we're in Ecclesiastes 43, verses 1 to 22, um, in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, 1 to 9, and in the book of the Revelation, chapter 14, verse 14 through chapter 15, verse 8. So th- this is basically today in the Ecclesiastes passage, we're getting this wonderful ode to God as he can be observed in worship through recognizing him in creation. So the pride of the higher realms is the clear vault of the sky, as glorious to behold as the sight of the heavens. The sun, when it appears, proclaims as it rises what a marvelous instrument it is, the work of the Most High. So in the uh, account of creation in chapter 1 of Genesis, the sun and the moon are not actually named. They're, They're just the greater light to rule by day and the lesser light to rule by night. And so there's a reason for that, and that is that those things were worshipped by other peoples. And so what it's saying was the greater and lesser light that were created by God is to say those things are subservient, and they serve only a purpose. They're not gods themselves. They only serve his purposes and his goodwill. So that's the, the point of, of this, is to say that the sun proclaims as it rises what a marvelous instrument it is, the work of the Most High. In other words, there's, there's a creator God who brought these things into being. So even if you worship them as gods, you have to recognize that they are not properly called gods because there's only one thing properly called God, and that's the one who created these things. At noon, it parches the land, and who can withstand its burning heat? A man tending a furnace works in burning heat, but three times as hot as the sun scorching the mountains. Well, it's a little more than that, but, you know. It breathes out fiery vapors, and its bright rays blind the eyes. Great is the Lord who made it. At his orders, it hurries on its course. Now we're going to move on. It's the moon that marks the changing seasons, governing the times, their everlasting sign. From the moon comes the sign for festal days. The Jewish calendar is based on a lunar calendar on on the waxing and waning of the moon. The new moon, as its name suggests, renews itself. How marvelous it is in this change. A beacon to the hosts on high, shining in the vault of the heavens. It can be used to navigate. It can be used for all manner of things, the changing seasons, every bit of it. So the moon has important functions, and it does indeed rule the night. 
in the same way the sun rules the day, but, but it loses its rulership, each does, every single day. The glory of the stars is the beauty of heaven, a glittering array in the heights of the Lord. On the orders of the Holy One, they stand in their appointed places. They never relax in their watches. So they, they, they likewise serve him. Look at the rainbow and praise him who made it. It's exceedingly beautiful in brightness. It encircles the sky with its glorious arc. The hands of the Most High have stretched it out. By his commands, he sends the driving snow and speeds the lightnings of his judgment. Therefore, the storehouses are open and the clouds fly out like birds. In his majesty, he gives the clouds their strength and the hailstones are broken in pieces. The voice of his thunder rebukes the earth. When he appears, the mountains shake. And those are from the Psalms, those images right there. At his will, the south wind blows. So do the storm from the north and the whirlwind. He scatters the snow like birds flying down. Its descent is like locusts alighting. The eye is dazzled by the beauty of its whiteness and the mind is amazed as it falls. He pours frost over the earth like salt. And icicles form like pointed thorns. The cold north wind blows and ice freezes on the water. It settles on every pool of water and the water puts it on like a breastplate. He consumes the mountains and burns up the wilderness and withers the tender grass like fire. A mist quickly heals all things. The falling dew gives refreshment from the heat. So it's a, it's a beautiful passage to the Creator God. And we need constantly to be reminded of that. Whenever we're out in nature, whenever we see a rainbow, whenever we hear thunder and lightning and all that, we need to recognize the one who has called this entire world into being in all its variety and all its wonder. It's, it's necessary for us, if we're going to follow him in all things, is to recognize him in all things and worship him in all things as well. In the gospel today, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. Now, why would they be telling him about that? Well, it's because he's a Galilean. And they don't like Galileans down in Jerusalem. That's not, they looked down on those who were from Galilee because they thought they had been more compromised with Rome where purity of religion had been maintained by those who lived in Jerusalem. And so they, they thought less of the Galileans. And so they, they tell Jesus about this. And it's not even a condemnation of Pilate, which means what in the world is wrong with you? Um, but that, that, that you're not condemning Pilate for mingling the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I mean, what he's, what he's doing is taking their argument and turning it on its ear because they already think Galileans are awful. And so what he's saying is, Do you think these are worse than other Galileans? Oh, he sounds like he might be on our side, even though he's from Galilee. Because, no, I, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Oh, wait. (laughs) I thought when he started this, he was just talking bad about the Galileans. But now he's applying that same principle to us. We're not better than the Galileans is what he's just saying. Oh, are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam right here in Jerusalem fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And, and it's a wonderful way of turning their little pointed barb on its ear. Because what he, what he said is, is that, that, that you are no better than those. They didn't meet that end because they were judged by God. 
is his point. It's because that would be the the others. There's there would be two attitudes they would take, right? So if one fails, then you've still got the backup. So the first attitude they would take is is the, that Galileans are bad people. They're just sinners. Period. End of sentence. They're so compromised. So that that's the original thing for doing that. But then Jesus also speaks to a secondary theological issue, and that is, okay, if you take away the Galilean part of it for me, then, then I'm going to say, the, see, that's God's judgment on those particular people. It's first, it's judgment on the Galileans because they're bad. And then it's, it's further, if, if you take that away from me, then, then what I've got is, is that they must have been really particularly bad Galileans, or they wouldn't have died that way. Right, I mean that, that it's the same theology that that Job's friends bring to him, and it's the same theology that that is exposed in the disciples' question in John nine about the man born blind, who was born, who who sinned that he was born this way, him or his parents. It's the same thing the Pharisees say at the end of it. They don't they don't even bother with it. All they know is you were conceived in utter utter sin, and the proof is he was born blind. Well, if he was conceived in utter sin, so what's going on now? How can this be sinful? The healing of that blindness that was caused by sin. How can that now be anything other than righteousness? But they they can't be bothered with a rational argument or consistent argument. Because, well, they've already made up their mind about Jesus, and so one sin plus one sin can't equal righteousness and healing. So they need to think a little deep, more deeply about that. So here Jesus does that very thing. He takes the, the intention that Galileans are bad and addresses it, and then addresses it in such a way that he says, you can't even get, uh, judge those specific Galileans by the way they died any more than you can judge Jerusalemites by the fact that the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And you can't judge those particular Jerusalemites as worse you know, oh, okay, so God got rid of the bad, 18 bad Jerusalemites, right? Is that what it's saying? And now we're good to go. And he said, no, 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 they weren't more sinful. That's not, that, that is not a theological principle. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And that's about that's exactly how long he should have given that fig tree. And so it's not producing at the end of time. When you plant that tree, your expectation is I'll get fruit this year. But the vine dresser answered, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. So he's asking for forbearance and asking him to give him another year on this thing. Even though it hasn't produced yet, he, he still has hope of it. Why does he care? What, what difference does it make? Just uproot that one and, and move on with life. Well, a lot of us have that same attitude towards other people. And we've got to exercise forbearance, and we've got to trust that as long as that person is still around, then God's doing something. I don't know what it is, but he's doing something. But 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 he he's exposing attitudes here, and, and the way I know that is because of their original statement to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrifice. They were judging those people. Now Jesus here turns that whole thing on its head, and he says, "Then if it should not bear if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down." He's pleading for the life of this fig tree, which is otherwise unimportant in the world. Why would this guy, the vine dresser, be interested in the fig tree well it's because it's a parable <laughs> the parable is to say jesus is concerned about the fig trees that don't bear fruit and he always wants to give it more attention and if i give it my personal attention and work on it then i believe that i can save it and i can make it something of value and that's the only way we're going to be made into something of value
I don't care who you are or how long you've been following Jesus, that the reality is is that the only way we can bear any fruit at all and anything of value is because he has personally made sure that we do by giving us his Holy Spirit and allowing that Spirit to work within us. In the Revelation passage today, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And, and that can't be, I don't think it can be Jesus, frankly, and here's why. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so this one's going to take direction. The one seated on the cloud is going to take direction from an, from an angel. He's being told what to do. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped, which would intend to indicate that people died. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress has trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is about 600 feet. So this horrible, horrible thing is happening here, that that this judgment of God, because wine didn't flow out, blood did. So we know from that that we're not talking about grapes in this. We're talking about the, the grapes of wrath. That have, that have been gathered up into the heavens and put into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and amazing sign, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And that sea of glass we've seen before, we've, we've seen it in Revelation 4 as the throne was there and then in front of the throne was a sea like glass. And we see a similar kind of thing in, in uh, Exodus 19, when they go up on Mount Sinai, and, and there's this glassy thing in front of the throne of God at the top of Mount Sinai when the elders go up there. <clears throat> so a sea of glass mingled with fire, and the fire would indicate wrath. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. And that goes back to that Ecclesiastes passage. When we read that passage, we should be we should be worshiping and praising God for his deeds, which include his creation and includes every part of his creation, because all of it comes together to produce the kind of life we now live. So those are the deeds of God, are his greatness in uh, creation, but also in preserving his people and calling his people and giving them the land and continuing to show forbearance towards his sinful, wayward people, whether that's Israel or the church. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." And how have they been revealed? They've been revealed in God's judgment. They've been revealed in the cross of Christ. 
that is his righteous, most righteous act is the, the love of God and, and the fullness of the love of God in sending his son to die for our sins on the cross. The most unrighteous thing from a human perspective that ever happened is the greatest act of righteousness that's ever been because it was purely an act of love. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary, there's hidden things in heaven. So this sanctuary of the tent of witness, it's the, the temple. It's the tabernacle. So it was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now, you would think that the seven angels with the seven plagues would not be clothed in bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. You would think they would come in black, right? So it's a very different idea. This is righteousness. So God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment is righteous. And because it's righteous, then the angels come out in bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. It may feel terrible. It may be an awful thing to see but it's righteous and because it's judgment on sin. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven goals, golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So where have we seen a similar kind of an image? Well, we've seen it twice, actually. We saw it when the tabernacle was dedicated at the end of the book of the Exodus, that the glory of God filled the tabernacle and no one could come near it. And then we see the same thing again in 2 Kings 8 when Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory of God comes and fills that. Here, it's filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. The smoke from the glory of God. So he is a consuming fire. However, Here, what we see is not glory in the sense of bright light. No, we see smoke. And and what typically put the smoke in the sanctuary? Well, it was the incense altar, which are the prayers of the saints. Now the prayers of the saints have been answered in the judgment of God. The prayers of the saints are, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in order to establish that, there's got to be a battle, and there's got to be judgment on sin once and for all. In order that, that righteousness can be established. And so the glory is obscured by the smoke of the wrath and the judgment of God. The glory will return once those seven plagues of the seven angels are finished.